Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 65 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name's Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching, and this is our last episode for 2021. And I just wanted to take a moment just to wish all our listeners uh, a happy Christmas and a, and a safe new year. And even if you don't celebrate Christmas, hopefully you're able to just have a moment of reflection and a, 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 an opportunity to recover um, from what has been no doubt a challenging um, period of time. And ahead of 2022, which whilst it's a new year, may well present further challenges as we continue to navigate whatever the pandemic throws at us. But my guest today is someone I met a few years ago on a plane. Stan Grant has had more than 30 years in radio and television news, covering current affairs um, both in Australia and overseas. He's interviewed numerous world leaders, including Nelson Mandela, Bill Clinton, Yasser Arafat, and many Australian prime ministers, including Bob Hawke, John Howard, Tony Abbott, Julia Gillard. Stan's won numerous awards, both internationally and in Australia, and is the best-selling author of several books and contributes articles regularly to many Australian newspapers, magazines, and journals. We recently met up again as we were both presenting from the same studio for an online conference, and he agreed to come on the podcast and share a little bit of his insights around leadership. Now, I went to the ABC studios to record this, but was unable to use this professional setup that I'm using here. So we recorded it directly on the laptop, which accounts for some of the background noise that you're going to be hearing in this. But I have no doubt that the quality of the conversation more than makes up for the quality of the audio. Hope you enjoy it. So Stan, thanks so much for uh, agreeing to have a chat. Yeah, it's good. Remember the last one, so it's good to be back again. <laughs> yeah, so um, we um, reconnected just a few weeks yeah. ago at a, at a conference, and um, one of the things that um, I've been thinking on about since was actually um, the connection between, um, I guess, what I was talking about at that conference was around leadership and, and your role, which, um, you know, in, in the media, a lot of it, focuses on communicating to us mm. <laughs> the public about leadership and so when I um, when I reached out to you to say hey how do you fancy coming on for another yeah. another chat I, I, that's kind of the, the angle that I'm, I'm keen to take but for the benefit of people um, listening I just thought I'd share like we actually first chatted about um, on a plane on a plane <laughs> indeed indeed on a plane and I uh, yeah I was sat next to you and I sort of just uh, took an opportunity to introduce myself and um we, you, you graciously then agreed to um, chat um, on a podcast that I was doing a little segment on back then. And I actually went back to the records and, and saw when that was. And here's a funny coincidence. That episode aired on the date of Donald Trump's inauguration. Really? Really? <laughs> really. And I thought that that would be quite an interesting sort of start, yeah. given that we're talking about leadership. Yeah. And your role in communicating to the public about leadership. Obviously such a, a polarising character in every yeah. sense of the word. Uh, Donald Trump, not you, yeah. not you. Um, I'm just curious. I could be as well. I, mean, I, I work for the ABC. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess I'm just yeah, interested in, in you know, your perspective over the past 
four or five years. There seems mm. to me as a layman uh, to have been a real shift. Maybe that shift was happening all the time, but it seems to have been quite stark. Yeah. Um, with with him as the lightning rod, if I'm being honest. Yeah, I, th- I think it has accelerated. There's there's no doubt about that. But I don't know that he. No, I, in fact, I know he was not the cause. He did not create it. He captured that moment. I think he's very canny you know mm. he, he knows what buttons to push um, he's a a symptom rather than a cause and mm. and exploited an opportunity but those tensions have been in society for, for a long time now particularly the United States and you know as goes the US so go we all I think in mm. some respects particularly in the West you know it's a it's a weather vane for a lot of cultural and political shifts in our world and going back to the 1940s, uh, 1960s, you started to see a real um, cultural and political battleground form, a new divide, new fault lines, particularly around questions of culture and what represents culture. Race became a part of that. And of course, in the 1960s, that was really red hot, the civil rights movement, and race riots, the rise of groups like the Black Panthers and so on. Um, assassinations of political leaders uh, and and there was a, a real shift uh, in the sort of dynamics where the where the Republicans started to present themselves as a voice for those left behind the people who were losing their country um, a voice for the old values of America as they saw them you know Christian white values um, Abortion became one of those lightning rod issues. Gun control became one of those issues. And, and that, that, that continued right through. I mean, Nixon captured some of that ground. Um, Reagan later on, of course, captured that ground with that sort of hyper-patriotism and the idea that America was defending freedom against the evil empire of the Soviet Union. And, and that was very persuasive and... and um, and very successful, and of course, you know, in no small measure led to the collapse of the Soviet Union mm. as well, with the pressure that, that that it was placed under, and that that messaging that came from from the Reagan era, um, and and so I think those divides had were there, and this shift was set in train, and then when you come to someone like Donald Trump, it's almost like a perfect storm in a sense. You've had the Obama years, and Trump is a reaction to Obama and a sense that Americans, white Americans, were going to reclaim their country. And his vote was overwhelmingly white, and and we know that he played to the worst aspects of of racism. But he also tapped into something else that Obama himself was responsible for, and that is a sense that Washington wasn't listening to, quote, ordinary people anymore. The wealth divide was was growing. Um, Massive inequality. The 2007, 2008, financial crash which saw people lose their homes and their jobs and Obama backed the bankers. No bankers went to jail. Bankers kept their jobs. Um, The banks were too big to fail. Ordinary people were the ones who suffered and that festered. You know, Hillary Clinton comes along and starts lecturing people about being deplorables. If you're supportive of Donald Trump, you you belong to the sort of basket of deplorables. Mm. Trump seized on that. So these Tensions were long there, had been playing out over decades. They had accelerated and sharpened. The wealth divide um, played into that. And then someone like Donald Trump comes along and says, with easy slogans, drain the swamp. 
um, uh, make America great again. Um, you know, the, the, the American Washington elite had forgotten you. Um, you know, these very simple bumper sticker slogans that people could, have, could latch on to. And even if Trump wasn't going to be the answer to those things, people believed that he heard them mm. and they registered that protest. Now, that's followed other parts of the world. Brexit is part of that divide. Mm. In Brexit, a divide between the rural and the urban. You know, um, urbanised Londonites weren't voting to leave. Mm. Um, there was a real geographic split, um, an idea that we need to reclaim our identity as British. Um, in Europe, countries like Hungary, where you see people like Viktor Orban, again, play on this idea of being under attack. We're going to be replaced. Um, I am standing up for who we are, these questions of identity. Bolsonaro in Brazil, um, Modi in India with the Hindu nationalism, Erdogan in Turkey with his own, um, you know, Islamist sense of identity. Uh, so where people find a sense that they are under threat, that there is some sense of resentment, uh, and they can capture that and play on fear and anxiety, you see a populist movement. And I think that has been the big, big driver of politics over the past decade and it's still there in our world today. Mm. And if we were to bring it closer to home in Australia, yeah. to what extent do you, because I mean, let's think about some of the, the, the things that you were using, you know, race. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, inequities, wealth, yeah. Yeah. Um, threats, threats. I mean, culture, we, abortion, yeah. you know, gay rights, freedom of religion, yeah, all yeah, this yeah, kind yeah. of stuff. So talk to me a little bit about how as someone whose you know, role is to observe and, mm. and, and, and give insight on that. What, what are you seeing? What are you thinking about as you see the things yeah. play out? Australia is America light. You know, there are things that mitigate here the worst extremes of American politics. The biggest one being that we have compulsory voting. Mm -hmm. Compulsory voting means you take away the ability to get out the vote, to capture people with, um, with those, the messages of division or hatred or play on the worst aspects of race or, or class or yeah, culture wars. Um, in America, you get the vote out, you win the vote. Mm. Here we have to vote. Mm. And people turn up and it's a bit of a duty and you get your sausage and you place your vote. And, and as a result of that, it's a bit less heated. The extremes have always existed here on the left and the right, but they've been marginalised. Um, so I don't think we see it play out to the same extent. You don't see the hyper divisions that we see in other parts. We're rich and we're small um, and we have a strong social safety net. And these things are part of the social contract in Australia. So we don't have the sort of dog-eat-dog, winner-take-all, laissez-faire sort of economic approach that you see in the US, which creates winners and losers and taps into the idea of the American identity. We don't have Europe's proximity to each other. We don't share land borders with other countries. We don't have those, the history of civil wars in Europe and, and you know, nations going to war against themselves in Europe that... You know, the, we, we don't have that. So we have a, it's, it's a very different thing in Australia. But what has happened, I think, is the same um, disillusionment, the same loss of faith and belief in the major parties, crisis of our institutions. We've had royal commissions into our banks, into our aged care, into our churches. Um, so 
the, these these things have shaken our confidence in our our system. Um, politics, even though we have compulsory voting and it mitigates the worst aspects of, of the sort of extremes of politics, the fact that elections are played out and fought and won in marginal seats means that those extremes, um, marginal as they are, can become very important. You know, placating the one nation vote can mean that get you over the line in certain seats, swapping preferences with those people, with the Palmer Party, with the Greens, um, can be really decisive in particular seats. So we've seen politics being driven less from the sort of broad centre and more to appease those groups where the marginal seats are going to be decisive. And we've got aspects of that. The other thing I think that troubles me is that we're also following America's lead on the sort of culture wars. You know, again, all the things you ticked off, you know, the race question, and the, uh, rights question and the freedom questions and religion and gay rights and abortion and all those sort of things, which, again, is not as heated as America, but we're sort of following that as well, the cancel culture. And these things are very, you know, these are fundamentally illiberal ideas where you shut people down, where you drown people's voices out. And if you do that, you, you spark a blowback and a resentment. And we're seeing that here as well and creeping in, particularly in university campuses and so on, um, amongst the sort of elite, um, cultural elite in the cities where you start to see that. Um, institutionally you see it, culturally as I say you start, you start to see these things play out. Um, you know, the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter movement, as, as urgent as many of these things are, they also come with their own extremities and their own orthodoxies, um, which can be fundamentally illiberal ideas as well. Um, so again, you, you get into this thing where there is a clash of rights, a clash of beliefs, a clash of identities, and the questions of identity are really starting to take root here. The Israel Folau case is a really interesting one, right? Mm. I mean, he was expressing a view that is taught in every church every weekend. Um, particularly the fundamentalist, you know, Pentecostal churches that, mm. that he, he goes to. But it's, it's a fundamental, you know, tenet of Christian doctrine. Um, and, and, pe and, and people of good and genuinely held faith have a problem with things such as same-sex marriage or, or homosexuality. Now, the fact that that's offensive to others is something that, you know, we need to be able to discuss and have that, you know, that, um, that debate. But when you take away someone's livelihood, when you silence someone, you raise questions about whose rights really do matter. Mm. Um, is the right to be a, uh, a genuine, hold a genuine Christian belief and, and express that right um, not as valued as the right of someone to have their identity recognised as an LGBTQ plus person? So they're the, they're the fault lines mm. and we don't have answers to these things. We're struggling with these things. We follow in America's wake, and right now it's it's a mess. America is a mess. The identity wars, wokeness, extreme extremism, white extremism, all these things, it is a mess. And the seeds of that are here as well. And I don't hear people in leadership talking to this, genuinely saying, this is, this is not, not on in our society. Mm. We should be, have a different society to this. Our liberalism is different to this. Um, so I worry about some of those the creeping authoritarian aspects of identity wars 
that can follow the path of America. I'm thinking, actually, as you're speaking there, of the episode of Q&A that yeah. you've um, hosted just a, couple, a few weeks ago, where um, ostensibly it was around Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, but, but really it was about the Western canon, Western civilization. Yeah. Shakespeare is an, as, a, as an emblem of that. And yeah. one, of the, um, one of the challenges that was thrown down was the idea of being able to hold two ideas exactly. at once and discuss it. And it, it strikes me that um, the leaders don't want to engage in that kind of nuance and that kind of, well, no, it depends. It's, 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 it's a, all or nothing. Yeah, it's a culture war and t- take no prisoners, you know. I mean, here's an example. In that, in that program, um, uh, Nakia Louie was on yeah. the Indigenous Playwright. Um, um, and, and even saying that in a sense an indigenous playwright marginalises her to an degree too she's mm. the playwright right yeah. she's but um, uh, who, who is also an indigenous woman but um, you know and the debate was about Shakespeare and, and western culture and whether western culture drowns out other things and whether Shakespeare has drowned out other voices and why do we still care about Shakespeare and you know the baggage of the West, enlightenment ideas of freedom and liberty also come with genocide and colonisation and empire and all those things are true. But then when I said to Nakia, and John Bell was on there, of course, from Shakespeare um, Company, he was very gracious and, you know, obviously making a case for Shakespeare, but dealing with the, with the critique. And then when I asked Nakia, you know, we spent so much time criticising and critiquing Western culture. Is there anything in Western culture that you value, is useful, um, and is worth preserving? And she wouldn't answer it. Yeah. And you know, I, I mean, I understand that. I understand as an Indigenous person, that's a really mm. confronting question. Mm. I'm an Indigenous person. Mm. Asking the question is is a, is, a, is a confronting question to ask because we know that you know the impact of the West has been devastating on our communities. But I also value. Pluralism, liberalism, freedom, mm. democracy, freedom of expression, the fact that we're on Q&A, mm. a program that can't exist in China, mm. um, where Nakia is free to write her poems um, a, a, as satirical and as critical as they may be of the society that she observes, that we are free to do those things, to my mind is, I mean, that's, um, that's obvious. Mm. Is that not worth preserving? So there was, I thought there's a bit of intellectual dishonesty there. Mm. I mean, if you can't, on the one hand, criticise the West, but on the other hand, acknowledge the fact that the West is also a place that gives us the freedom to criticise it. Mm. If, that, if you don't value that and want to preserve that, I mean, what do you value and preserve? Mm. And so, you know, I thought, I thought that was a little bit of performance over substance. Mm. I'm not going to answer it because it doesn't fit the way I see, you know, the, the, the people who, my brand, if you like, right? Yeah. And, and again, we have to hold two, view, two views in common. We have to hold two ideas in common. I live with the tension of the West in me. Um, and it's not a zero-sum game. It's just not a zero-sum game. So I think our inability to hold those two different ideas, to be honest about our histories, to, to be able to have intellectually honest conversation about these things, just feeds into a partisanship, a tribalism, and an endless culture war that will kill us. Mm. Right? That will be the death of us, mm. because we live in a in a world now where democracy is in retreat. Uh, we are less free and and less democratic today than we were a decade ago, or 20 years ago. Every organisation that measures the health of democracy, Freedom House and others, um, can 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 
have observed this uh, and, and, and you can see where the slide is happening. Countries like India are not barely even democracies now. Mm. Um, there's this sort of nationalism and, and, and populism and racism that's sort of tearing at the fabric of democracy. And all of this at a time when you have a rising authoritarian power in China that threatens to upend a global order. So if we can't value those things, if we can't have honest conversation, if we can't value a Western tradition of pluralism, liberalism, freedom, while at the same time criticising the, the worst aspects of that, devastating aspects of that, genocide and empire and colonisation and misogyny and all of those, if we can't have that conversation, then that'll be the death of us. Um, and we will lose what we've got, and it will go. And I've lived in societies where that doesn't exist, in the Middle East, in China, where you don't have the freedom to have this conversation, mm. to write what you want, to associate with whom you want, to criticise government, to protest, where your identity can determine whether you live or die, whether you're a Uyghur, whether you're a Shia, whether you're a Sunni, whether you're a Hindu, whether you're you know, a Catholic or a Protestant in mm. Ireland. Mm. I've lived in those societies. It can so easily be lost. And we will destroy what we have if we continue on the path that we're on. Mm. And destroy it quickly, really quickly. And, and so it strikes me that the, the one vehicle for this is to, to you know, educate and to, to create the environments where we can have these intellectually honest conversations. And, and it strikes me that as a former teacher, and I know that you've got teachers in your yeah, family yeah. with your grandfather yeah. and yeah. whatnot, and, and it strikes me that schools would present an incredible forum to, to start having these conversations and yet our Minister for Education, Alan Tudge, yeah. uh, one, wants a celebratory curriculum that doesn't yeah. talk about the on, uh, what's yeah. actually happened. And second of all, I don't know if you've picked this up, but um, when, historian, when history teachers specifically, but teachers in general, have just raised um, um, appropriately honest professional questions of him, he yeah. just blocks them on Twitter. Yeah. Which I just think, you know, going yeah, back which, to the Trumpy politics. It's not honest, is it? He's no. not being. And, and again, you know, I can hold two things in common. Just stepping out of the interview for a moment here to acknowledge the fact that since Stan and I sat down and recorded this interview, Alan Tudge has stepped aside from his role due to allegations of his involvement in an abusive relationship. I felt it worthwhile to keep the commentary in regarding Tudge in this case, because I think it speaks not only to him, but also a broader issue um, when it comes to engaging in important debate. I can recognise that we need to have a, an honest, open discussion and a full account of our history, the good and the bad. I also recognise that um, you know, part, of, part of teaching and part of education is to develop the ability to think critically. But I also recognise that that shouldn't come at the expense of valuing the things that we have. Mm. Tudge is half right. Mm. Um, we shouldn't be turning out people from schools and universities who hate Australia. Mm. I mean, uh, that, that's, that's insane. Mm. That is just insane. And yet, I see that happening. I see it happening. Um, in, what, in what sense do you see that happening, well, broadly? The, the, well, here's one example, that mm. Australia is irredeemably racist. Mm. That's just not true. I'm, I would not be here today mm. if that were true. Mm. Um, racism is illegal in Australia. Mm. If you p commit acts of racism, there are, there are mechanisms and, and um, agencies that you can go to for redress and recompense. And people can lose their jobs. I mean, you know, not to say it doesn't happen. It's not mm. to say that there is not inherent racism in our society. But to say that a society that 
when I was born didn't recognise me fully, didn't count me in the, in the census. A society that when, in my parents' day, they could not attend schools and sit in the same part of the cinema and swim in the swimming pool. Um, that the society of today, where I can appear on television, um, free to travel the world, sit here and have these conversations, have books published, that is, that is not a society that's irredeemably racist. That's a society that's on a journey mm. to deal with those things. And yet there are people who leave edu educational institutions who fundamentally believe that. Mm. Um, who fundamentally, you know, again, playing into identity wars, fundamentally believe that it's an irredeemably misogynist, sexist society. Um, it's, it's still a male patriarchy. There's, there's no doubt about it. It's a patriarchal society. Uh, uh, misogyny is deeply built into society. Um, and yet we see more women of power uh, at premiers. We've had a prime minister, significant female leaders across politics, society, business, than we've ever seen before. So again, there's zero-sum aspect of this. And, and if, that, if that means that you see your country through sort of jaundiced eyes, I mean, there will come a time, and there have been times in our history, when we are called on to defend this country, to fight for it. My grandfather had to do it. An Aboriginal man who wasn't fully recognised as a citizen in his own country went and fought for the country anyway, because he saw that there were things greater than even his own dignity, mm. and that was an honour of a society. Um, there'll be times, and again, and, and perhaps even sooner than we think, where we'll be called upon to actually fight and defend this country. If you don't believe in it, if you don't leave school with a sense that this is worth preserving, if when you are asked what is worth preserving and valuing in your society and you refuse to answer, then are you going to fight for it? Mm. Because believe me, people in China will fight for their country mm. um, to the death. Mm. So th that, that's what we face. So I, mm. I understand that. But, but that doesn't mean you remain blind mm. to the history of racism and sexism and power and that we can't think critically and engage critically with those things while also recognising that it fundamentally is for the good of the society. Mm. A, go a good society to be a better society. Mm. So preserving doesn't mean maintain the status quo necessarily. No, doesn't mean to, no, yeah. no, 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 no. Yeah. And, and it's not a reactionary idea too mm. where you just shut down. Mm. But I, I just think it's fundamentally dishonest mm. to take a view that a, a democratic, liberal, free, multicultural, um, society mm. as Australia is not valuable to be treasured, mm. preserved and worth fighting for, while at the same time you can criticise it. You know, Colin Kaepernick, when he began the, the yeah. Take the Knee movement, yeah. made this point. He said he saw it not as an act of condemning America or protesting against America, but an act of intense patriotism. Mm. He said he never turned his back on the flag or the anthem. He knelt for his country took a knee for his country. Mm. Um, that's an incredible show mm. of love for your country, to say it has failed us, it is continuing to fail us, and I believe in it enough to make it, to want to make it better. It's become the symbol instead of something else. Irredeemably racist, hates us, um, has a, a knee on our throat, um, America needs to be torn apart, Australia is the same, Britain is the same, that's what it's become as it funnels through the sort of intensity mm. of culture wars where we can't hold two ideas in common, mm. where a Colin Kaepernick cannot take yeah. a knee 
in defiance and love at the same time in this country. We can't do that because we we essentialise things, we simplify things, and we turn them into these endless, bitterly fought culture wars. And as I said before, that will destroy us. <laughs> this is a high-stakes game right now. What we have is not guaranteed. Democracy is in retreat. It is being choked off in parts of the world, and it faces an authoritarian threat. This is not play school anymore. Mm. This is where they fight with real bullets. Mm. And I think part of my experience as a reporter, having lived in oppressive regimes, where having been in places where they do this for real, where you leave, where you use live ammunition, to come back to a place where it's, it's turned into a, a silly parlour game of identity wars that have no consequence, mm. it's just like, do you realise where this can lead, because mm. I've seen where it can lead. Mm. If your Wikipedia page is to be believed, Scott Morrison in 2019 mm. offered you or, or invited you to, to join the, the political yeah. world. You turned it down, but also in 2019, uh, your uh, documentary, The Australian yeah. Dream, was released and it went on to receive uh, Walkley Awards, Actor mm. Awards for Best Documentary. Do you feel that you are better placed to affect change or hold people accountable in the media? Or, yeah. and, and is that one of the tensions around politics? Or does it go back to, because one of the things you were talking about before about having to appease different people, yeah, yeah. I could imagine that if I was put in that, play, that position, I'd find that quite hard because I'd be asked to appease with, even though this whole thing's about holding two ideas, yeah. there are some ideas which I would find harder to, oh, har yeah, yeah, exactly. harder to hold. And there are some ideas yeah. that are abhorrent. Yeah. Racism's abhorrent. Yeah. Um, sexism's abhorrent. Mm. You don't hold those two ideas in common. Mm. But what you can say is, what I could say is, racism is abhorrent. Racists uh, are not to be appeased. But a society that creates those people and creates those ideas can also hold within it the liberation from those ideas. That a society in America, for instance, that was born of slavery can also write a declaration of independence that says all men are created equal. Men, of mm. course, mm. using the language of the time. That's the tension. Mm. So, you know, I, I, it, it wouldn't preclude me, you know, the idea of having to sit alongside people who I disagreed with, even in the same party, wouldn't preclude me from going to politics because I believe that there is a, a bigger idea than just the individuals. And we have to accept that people come to this with their own ideas and their own you know, um, beliefs. But do we, can we create an environment where we can build a better society and a stronger society out of that? What, what, so I, I've, I've you know, it's always been a bit of a thing for me. I've been asked to stand for both sides of politics and um, and I've never had a political allegiance explicitly as that. I've never joined or belonged to a political party um, because I value my independence and my ability to think clearly. But I have certain values and, 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 um, and, and I, I wouldn't feel... And, and those values would accord with both the major parties, certainly, mm. at, at opposite ends of them. You know, um, but certainly a home within either of those parties would would not be out of step with the way I see the world and my, my own values. So, you know, it's 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 never that that's precluded. It's always been 
more a question of what I'm doing now, the, what I like doing, the timing, um, the, 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 you know, politics means you have to represent a particular electorate and what electorate would that be and if it's, you know, it's one that I have a genuine, but I'd never want to go to politics and go to a seat just because I need to be in parliament. Mm. That to me is really disingenuous and there's mm. far too much of that. But, you know, what I, what I do now in the media and what I do with writing and um, and being involved in sort of intellectual life in Australia is, is also an important thing, I think. Um, and bringing my own worldview and experience to bear helps to raise the tone of the discussion and the debate. And, um, and, and that, that's, an important, that's an important thing. But it's never really, the cards have never really fallen my way. Um, if I wanted to be in politics, I would be in it, but it's never really fallen that way for me. This is more compelling. Well, I mean, politics would be really compelling too. Mm. Um, it's just never, you know, some the the, the, the stars have never aligned completely mm. for that. Yeah. I've been offered things, and and like I say, if I'd taken them, I would be in Parliament right now. Mm. Would I still be doing things that I do? Would I still have the same impact? Um, you know, you get into politics, and suddenly you become part of the number, you know, another number to be counted, mm. and and and. and a, you know, toe a party line and all those things. I mean, all those things, that sort of discipline is important um, as long as you also feel as if it's worthy representing your values and you have an ability to speak when you want to speak. Um, and, and we don't, you know, there's far too much discussion of politics and far too little discussion about ideas, I think. And I'd be more interested in ideas. Mm. Because you mentioned there about you know raising the tone. When we last interviewed um, back in 2017, 2016, 2017, we were talking a, a lot about changing the narrative, not just mm. ra- not just incre- yeah, amplifying yeah. it, but actually changing yeah. it, particularly around obviously indigenous inequities and, and and whatnot. And I was wondering if we could just take a moment to think about the past two years in particular, because. Of, you know, in the Northern Territory, there's some lockouts now, and I yeah. just heard of the, you know, the the, the, the vaccination rates um, in Indigenous communities, and what, and, and it strikes me as really odd as as an English person who came here, who then taught um, HSC PDHPE, and the very first thing you learn about is Indigenous inequities and yeah. how that, you know, that prior we need to prioritise health and what and, and all that. How is it? And I'm going. That was 20 years ago. I came. Yeah. Why? <laughs> why is it still just? So, why is the gap not been closed? I remember them talking about yeah. closing the gap. Why is it not closing? It's a really, really complex issue. Um, clearly, money's not the answer to it because we've thrown a lot of money at these things. And and again, you know, to hold two ideas at the same time, it has closed. Closed for me. Mm. It's closed for a lot of people. There are more Indigenous graduates from universities today than ever before. Mm. There are more Indigenous businesses than ever before. There's a burgeoning Indigenous middle class. There is more Aboriginal representation in our parliaments than ever before. Um, and yet we see this entrenched disadvantage still. Um, and so you need to you need to break that down and look beyond. I mean, it's very easy to pivot to the usual suspects and not to say that these things are not factors, but colonisation, racism, history. Um, and all of those things are factors. But all those things were factors in my life. I mean, I was born into a, a family that had lived at the, you know, the coalface of all of that, born the full brunt of it. Um, I was 
my mother had me, we came, my first um, house was a broken down car. We lived in a broken down car at the back of my great grandmother's house on an Aboriginal mission. That's where I entered the world. Um, you know, I barely had an education. Um, my parents were itinerant, labourers. Um, it was a hand-to-mouth existence. And then, um, you know, some of the, some, you get a break and cards fall your way and opportunities present themselves. And that's happened to me and it's happened to a lot of other people. So the gap can close. Um, racism, colonisation, those things are not just the answer to why these inequities persist because they happen to me and, you know, I certainly would not see my kids. I mean, my kids are privileged kids by any measure. Yeah. Travelled, travelled, lived in other parts of the world, university educated, um, absolute, by any measure, incredibly privileged kids. So, and yet they're Aboriginal kids. So that, that one size fits all doesn't answer it. So what, what are the answers? You know, um, a few years ago I wrote a quarterly essay um, where I, I looked at, not through the Aboriginal people, not through the prism of race, but I tried to sort of reconfigure it and, talk, and see us as economic migrants in the same way that people will leave war-torn areas of Europe or Asia or whatever and come to Australia and build a new life. We emerged from our own war. <laughs> we emerged from our own... Um, you know, lost lands and we were in our own refugee camps and we made the journeys into small towns and into cities and, and it was hard and you faced racism and that, but that mobility, that ability to move, to create opportunity, to build a better life for your, your kids and your kids after that, to get a foothold in the economy, helps to lead to better outcomes. And if you look around at Aboriginal people who were um, we would describe as successful people who have um, attended university or have successful jobs and home ownership and uh, you know reason and good health outcomes. And they are the products of people who have made that economic journey, that migration through Australia. Um, if you look at people in the areas where there is entrenched disadvantage and poverty, there are also loss, of, lack of opportunity, lack of mobility. Um, often through, through no fault of their own, um, lack of infrastructure, um, remoteness, I mean remoteness and isolation anywhere in the world is poverty, anywhere in the world. If you live in a remote location, far from the big centres, the big cities, opportunities are not as great, you are poorer. Your life outcomes are less. Your life expectancy is lower. That's truth all over the world. China lifted 700 million people out of poverty. How? By moving people from the rural areas to the big centres, building bigger cities, building better infrastructure, fast-speed rail, uh, internet, you know, this transformation of the country um, through mobility and infrastructure, which doesn't exist in a lot of these societies. You know, some Aboriginal communities, there is no functioning healthcare, schooling, so you have economic issues, you have historical factors, then you add racism, discrimination, historical trauma, um, and you can see, you can start to see where, where these, why, we, why this is so intractable, um, and why the success of someone like me does not answer why other people are also not being successful um, in a socio-economic sense. So, it's really complex 
But if we reduce this to just a bumper sticker, mm. if it becomes a Donald Trump, um, you know, uh, drain the swamp, let's make America great again, if it becomes damn Australia to hell, Australia mm. is irredeemably racist, um, colonisation kills us, if that's what it is, then that doesn't answer the question. It's not enough. These things are so much more mm. complex than that. Mm. I want to round out by changing tack a, a little bit. When when uh, we were at the conference a few weeks ago, I spent a, a bit of time uh, talking with the delegates around um, leading themselves, yeah. like so self leadership and performing under pressure. And 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 it occurred to me that in your role of hosting, um, you know, Q and A, it can mm. get a little uh, feisty yeah. at times. Um, probably more so in in war zones when there's live rounds yeah. flying around, yeah. and and but also perhaps when you're reporting on um, things which are you know emotionally charged topics, things which really hit you. I'm wondering just and you know, it's, have you built up? Um, a repertoire? Have you built up a, a, a tool, a technique? How do you show up as your best? That's something I talk a right. lot about. How do I show up as, how do you show up as your best when the pressure is on? How do you keep you cool? How yeah. do you do what's needed at that time? Well, I, I don't think, you know, I think for me throughout my life that knowledge has been liberation for me. You cannot know enough. You cannot read enough. Um, you cannot ask enough questions of yourself. You cannot challenge yourself enough. You know, I, I read voraciously, thinking as deeply as I can, challenge myself. Every time I think I know an answer, I, I ask another question of myself. And then that flows through to the things that I do with others. And, you know, so that, that ability to, to, to know that there is always another question, there is always something deeper, that it, 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 it's, it gives, it's a, provides a ballast to my life. That sort of, I'm anchored in that sort of sense of the depth of knowledge and trying to understand the world and read and read widely and read things that I that challenge my own worldview, make me think again, mm. to rid myself of that certainty. When I see people retreating to certainty, I, I see intellectual cowardice, mm. people who just want to reach for an easy answer because the hard one is going to make them uncomfortable. Um, so so that, that's part of it. The, the other thing is, is being physically fit, um, exercising for my mental um, you know, health and, uh, and as a circuit breaker, and to physically be at your best. Mm. You know, you're not tired. When you're tired, you, you get a short fuse, you get angry, you get frustrated. The things that other people may do to piss you off are gonna piss you off even more. So I see that physical fitness and you know, I exercise every day in, in some way or another, coupled with the sort of mental exercise of reading and thinking gives me a really strong um, core mm. you know, to be able to do that stuff. And the other thing is to know that you're, you know, it's this great line, you know, you're just a wave, you're not the water. Mm. I mean, that's really important. I don't, I don't get any grand ideas about what we're trying to do or who, how important I am to this process. I can write a book, I can put it out there, people can read it, they can like it, dislike it, discuss it, that's it. That's my job done. I'm not, I'm not saving lives, I'm not, you know, running governments, I'm not, you know, I host a show like Q&A and, and it's, it's the audience's show. It's their questions, it's the people on the panel. My job is to facilitate that discussion, to bring the best out of that discussion, to push back and to ask people challenging questions, but 
but only to get to a point where we're all enlightened or we all think we know a little bit more than we did at the start of the show. To ask questions without judgment, um, to create an environment for those sorts of conversations, but to know fundamentally your place in the scheme of things mm. and some perspective on what you're doing. Um, so that perspective, knowing your place, that humility that I strive for, coupled with the physical and mental fitness that's required to do the job, you know, is a pretty good foundation for me. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I know that you uh, have to prep for tomorrow's yeah, Q&A, yeah, which yeah, is um, a, a, the little topic of your freedom. Topic. Freedom, yeah, a right. little one. Freedom, discuss. discuss. <laughs> Stan, thank you so much. Thanks, Dan. Cheers. As we always say, if you found that worthwhile, then there's a fair chance someone you know might find it worthwhile. So please feel free to share this podcast as far and as wide as you can in your networks. Also, please don't forget to like and comment on the podcast and also subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In that way, you'll never miss an episode. As I mentioned in the intro, that's it from us for 2021. Perko and I will be back in 2022 and we already have a stellar lineup of guests already locked in. But as always, if you have a guest or a suggestion for who or what we should talk about, then feel free, please, to head over to habitsofleadership.com and click on the podcast page there and make your suggestions. Um, thank you to everyone who's listened, everyone who's shared and everyone who has... Um, got in contact with us to tell us how they use the podcast in their leadership teams and, and just what insights and new behaviours and new habits that they've started to form as a result of listening. So thank you very much. Until 2022, take care, take it easy.